Father, if we long for anything in life, it's, it's to have joy, to, to be full of joy. And that's the way we should be if we're truly born-again Christians. And, and uh, uh, not only should we just have joy, Lord, we should have so much joy that it overflows to others. We, we, as we look at this little book of 1 John, uh, as we begin our study today, uh, Lord, we know that your purpose here is that our joy might be full, and, and all of us want full joy, and you're going to show us the conditions for having a cup full of joy. And so, Lord, I'm excited about this study, and I'm excited about uh, what you can teach us here. It's, a, it's an exciting book, a, a book, an encouraging book, and Lord, it, I can only express what you would express to these people by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I ask that you uh, anoint these words that I speak, that you anoint every ear in this room, and that, that Lord, we just learn what it means to have joy and how to have joy as we go through this study. I just, just ask for your blessing on this book and upon everybody here. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. The New York Times this past week read ran an article, and I'm not going to bore you with the details of the article because the title pretty much tells you what it's all about, but let, let me give you the title of the article. It said, Split Over Donald Trump and Cut Off by the Culture Wars, Evangelicals Despair. So that's the state you're in right now. You're in a state of despair according to the New York Times. I mean, we've lost the culture wars. That's the way they feel. We've lost the culture war. They, they, might, they might be right. We might have lost the culture war. But this isn't our, isn't our culture, is it? We, we have a culture in heaven. That's the culture that, that we live for. And, and they, they're saying that uh, we're left with Donald Trump and, and he's the only person we can vote for and, and uh, he's the only one who can rule over us. But he's not our ruler either, is he? Who's our ruler? Jesus Christ is our ruler. So uh, in this article, this lady implies that we've given up hope and we've lost our joy. Well, she's wrong. She's wrong. You know, if, if you're a born-again Christian, you should be full of the joy of the Lord. In other words, and not only that, you should have so much joy that your cup runneth over to other people. I mean... When people get around you, they should see a person full of joy. I mean, I, I, sometimes I see Christians, and I'll tell you what, we, we, look like, we do look like people who are despairing. We shouldn't be despairing. We should be full of joy. Do you, do you have that kind of joy? I mean, do you have that kind of joy that overflows to others? Well, I'll tell you what, John had it. And uh, he lived in a much worse day and in a much worse culture than we live in. And he was full of joy and he wanted us to have joy. And so he wrote this, this little book called, we call First John. Now you can't help but have hope. You can't help but get excited about the things of God when you study the little book of First John. J. Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee said, Whenever he went through 1 John uh, on his radio program, he had some of the highest ratings because it was such, it, it is such an encouraging book. Uh, it's written specifically to you and I. When you look at most books in the New Testament, 
There's a greeting and a church is named, like Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. There's no church given here. There's no greeting given here. There's, usually there's a closing and there's specific people that, that uh, the author names in that closing that he's writing to. Well, there's no specific people that he's writing to. John is specifically writing to you and I in this little book of 1 John. And it might very well be the last book that was written in the New Testament. That's why one expositor says this about the book. He says, it's, it's, it's as if Jesus saved the best wine for last. The very last book written. It's not the last book in the New Testament, but it was the last book written uh, in the New Testament. I want to introduce the book to you a little bit because I think it'll give you a little bit of background and maybe steer you away some, from some bad commentary on the book. Uh, and we really want to zero in on the purpose of this book. And, and uh, before we do that, though, let me, let me look at authorship and date. Who wrote the book of John? How do you know that? Is it, does John say anywhere in here that he wrote the book of John? I mean, 1 John, does it say that? He doesn't name himself in 1 John. He doesn't name himself in the Gospel of John. He doesn't name himself in 2 John or 3 John. So how do we know that he wrote 1 John? How do we know that? Well, surprisingly, most scholars are in, have, have a consensus view about this, and they believe that John wrote 1 John. Now, that's funny to me because remember when we introduced 2 Peter, I told you that most scholars don't believe that Peter wrote 2 Peter. They're wrong. But most of them don't believe that Peter wrote 2 Peter. Why? Do you remember why? Because the Greek is so different between the two books, between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. But one of the reasons scholars believe that, that John wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, is because the Greek is so similar to the Greek in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, John names himself as the author. And so... Uh, most people, most scholars believe that John wrote this even though he doesn't name himself as the author. But there's also a lot of external evidence. Uh, John had a disciple. His name was Polycarp. He died in the first century. John died, actually died in the second century. John died late in the first century, almost at the end of the first century. Uh, he actually did die at the end of the first century in 100 A.D. So uh, Polycarp was his disciple and Polycarp, who we have writings about and we have some of his writings in his writings he declared that john did write the gospel of john first john second john and third john and really if you look at any of the so-called church fathers including tertullian and irenaeus and clement of rome and augustine they all attribute first john second john third john and the gospel of john to the apostle john now where was he when he wrote this? And when did he write this? It's, it's interesting to me. I mean, you might not be interested in this, but, but it's very interesting to me where John was at when he wrote this. Because where was he at when he wrote the book of Revelation? He was on Patmos. He was on the island of Patmos. He was actually in prison on the island of, of Patmos when he had this dream. But tradition says that he was released from prison. In fact, Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus and Eusebius all talk about the fact that when John left Patmos, he went to Ephesus and pastored the church there in Ephesus until he died. 
Now, some people say he died on Patmos, uh, but most of the so-called church fathers in their writings say that John died of a ripe old age of 100 while he was in uh, Ephesus pastoring the church there. Now, he was on Patmos in around 96. He went there around 96 A.D., and then he went to Ephesus. He left Patmos. He was there two years, and he went to Ephesus around 98 A.D., and he was there until 100 A.D. And so he wrote this book sometime between 98 and 100 A.D. That's amazing to me. That makes this epistle, this epistle, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, the very last books written in the New Testament. He actually wrote Revelation before he wrote these two books. So this is the last word. 1 John, really, there's not much in 2 John and 3 John. We'll look at those, but there's not much in those. But really, 1 John is the last word we get from the apostles. It's the last word in the Bible that we get from the Lord. So it's very important. And, and uh, he had a purpose in writing this book. Now, most scholars will tell you that the purpose that he had in writing this book was to refute a heresy known as Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of Gnosticism? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you have not ever heard of Gnosticism? Be honest. If you, yeah, okay. I mean, unless you're into really studying introductions to books, you're probably not going to know anything about Gnosticism. But let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of Jehovah's Witnesses? You, you might be here today and you're a Jehovah's Witness. You might be here today, you might be a Mormon. You might not like what I'm about to say if you're here and you're a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. Uh, but those are forms of Gnosticism. Unitarianism is a form of Gnosticism. Uh, um, church of the Christian Science Church, I think they call it, that has not a lot of Gnostic views in it. Well, what's, what is Gnosticism? Well, basically what the Gnostics believe, they believe that God was so powerful, and he is. He was so mighty, and he is. And he was, he's so holy, and he is, that nobody could ever know this great and all-powerful God Almighty. We don't know his name. We don't know where he's at. Nobody can know him. That's what the Gnostics believe. But they believe that these divine sparks emanated from this great and powerful God. And one of those divine sparks is the God we know as Jehovah God. I know it sounds weird, doesn't it? But study Jehovah's Witnesses theology and study Mormon theology, and you can see a lot of this in there. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. So anyway, this divine God named Jehovah created the heaven and the earth, and at some point, he had two divine sparks that came off of him. One of them was Lucifer, and one of them was Jesus Christ. He was a divine spark coming off Jehovah God, who was a divine spark coming off this great and powerful God. Now, when you study some of these cults, they believe that Jesus, and you probably have heard this, that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. They're, they're kindred sparks is what they are. And from this spark of Lucifer came these evil sparks we know as demons and evil people, powers and authorities. They, they are sparks emanating off of Lucifer. And then off of Jesus came these divine sparks we know as angels. And then off of the angels come these divine sparks. And that's what you and I are. 
we're like these divine sparks. That's what we call Gnosticism. Now, in John's day, there were two forms of Gnosticism. There was Docetic Gnosticism, and there was Serinthian Gnosticism. I'm heading somewhere here. Hang with me. And in Docetic Gnosticism, they believed that every, all the Gnostics believed that the material was bad. Anything material was bad. And so nothing holy would ever take a body. So if Jesus was this divine spark, who was this holy spark, he would never take on a material body because that body would be unholy and he had to be holy and all material things are unholy. That's not true, by the way. And, I, and, and I'll tell you what, there are people who tend, even in evangelical circles, to teach that way, that somehow material, the material world is bad. Who created the material world? Getting into correct doctrine here. Who created the material world? Jesus Christ created the material world. He created it. And what did he say after he created it? He said it is good. It is very good. But the Gnostics believed that it was all bad because this great and powerful God out there could not have anything to do with material things because material things were evil. And so they believed that Jesus Christ, the Docetic Gnostics believed that Jesus Christ never really had a body. He only appeared to have a body. And then there were the Serenthians Gnostics who believed that he, never, he didn't have a body until the baptism of, when, when he was baptized by John and the dove came down, the spirit, this Holy Spirit came upon him and then that spirit left him at the cross but then never to return to, never to, he would never return to a body again that Jesus Christ is spirit. He's one of these sparks emanating from this great and powerful God who had Jehovah, who had uh, Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said when he was on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so you come to verse 1. Here's where we were heading with this. You come to verse 1 of 1 John and read what it says. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. You catch what John's saying there? It almost, it's almost as if he is refuting Gnosticism here. See, these scholars believe he wrote this to refute that heresy I just described to you. Those people that believe that Jesus was just spirit, he was not material. And so John writes in his introductory verse here in verse number one, he says, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And so that verse does refute Gnosticism. There's no doubt about that. But was that John's purpose? Well, all biblical truth refutes error, doesn't it? But did, was the Bible written to refute error? No, no more than the dollar bill was made to refute counterfeit dollars. The dollar bill's main purpose is not to discredit counterfeit dollars. What's the dollar bill's main purpose? Purpose to buy, you can't even get a candy bar with it anymore. Maybe we'll talk about a hundred dollar bill. But the but the but the, the dollar bill's main purpose is what? It's a it's a unit of monetary exchange. That's its purpose. Now certainly you can use a real dollar to discredit a counterfeit dollar, but that is not its main purpose, not at all. And so 
I don't believe the main purpose that John have, even though you can go to verse 1 and, and refute Gnosticism, I don't believe the main purpose that he had was to do that. Now, you really don't even have to figure out his purpose in writing this book. And, and the reason I took you into that uh, teaching on Gnosticism is that you will hear this all the time from preachers in evangelical pulpits. They will take a book like 1 John and, and exegete the book, and in every verse they will be trying to fit it to where it's refuting Gnosticism. And they'll destroy what John was trying to do here. People do that with Colossians. They say that Paul wrote Colossians to refute Gnosticism. Colossians certainly does refute Gnosticism, but that wasn't his main purpose. And when you start trying to force those interpretations to meet a different purpose than the author had for the book, then you end up with a jumbled mess, okay? And that's why I went through all of this, because that was not John's purpose. What was his purpose? You know what? He tells us. It's really cool here. He gives us three purposes for this book, and he tells us each one of them. Look in verse number four. He says, and these things I write to you. Why? What's my purpose? that your joy may be full. Boy, I like that purpose a lot better than making this some theological treatise against Gnosticism. Don't you see where you missed the excitement of what John's trying to give us right here? John's, John wants you to have joy, full joy, full joy, joy that overflows to others. He wants your cup to run over to others. I mean, some of you raised your hand and said you've got a cup full of joy, but, you know, I look at some of your faces today, I don't see much Joy. And, and, I, and I look at myself in the mirror sometimes and I don't see much joy. I want joy. And you should want joy. What a great purpose to write the very last book in the New Testament, to give us joy. So, Ben, if you're honest with yourself and you're lacking some joy, I mean, some of you have joy some of the time, some of you have joy every once in a while. Some of you never have joy. If you're lacking joy, then Hey, this is the book for you. But he also gives us another purpose. Look in chapter 2, verse number 1. He says, my little children. That's a term of endearment. Speaking to you today. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. That you'll quit sinning. And if any, and, and here, let me, I've got some good news, John says. If you do sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why I'm writing you this book. So you'll quit sinning. And so you'll have joy. And then go to chapter 5. He's got another purpose there. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Verse number 13 of chapter 5. I'm sorry. These things I've written to you. Verse 13 who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Wow. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may continue to make the most important thing in your life, the Lord. Now, all of those really go together, don't they? Because if you're sinning, you're not going to have any joy, not if you're a born-again believer. You might have fun for a season, but you're not going to have any joy. If you're continuing in sin, 
in what you know to be sin, and you're a believer here today, you will not have joy. But the good news is, if you fall into sin, you have an advocate who cleanses you of all unrighteousness. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to lose your joy because, man, I fell into sin today. I had an evil thought. You don't lose your joy because Jesus Christ cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And then, hey, if you don't know that you know that you know that you have eternal life, you will not have joy. You know when you really got joy? When the doctor comes to you and he tells you you've got months to live and you high-five the doctor. Well, that's great. Because I know I have eternal life. I know I have it now. I've already been given life, and whosoever believeth in the Son, he shall never die. I know that. That's what John wants us to know. So what an exciting book, and, and uh, uh, John's going to carry us through this and show us even more things. He's going to show us even more ways to, to make sure that your joy is full. You want joy? Grab your bulletins for a minute. If you don't have a bulletin, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Ron, could you get a bulletin? Anybody doesn't have one? You can share to the person next to you, but you need a bulletin here. Anybody else need a bulletin? How many more we got? You got one? Everybody got one? Oh, the, the worship leader doesn't have one, but I'm teasing. He doesn't need it up here. Anyway, look at your, look at your back of your bulletin. I don't know if y'all ever look on the back there, but it kind of give you a little bit of an introduction to the to the lesson. That's why we put that on the back. But, but I, on this particular bulletin, I put an outline of 1 John, and it's kind of a different outline. If you're here and you're an English major, don't jump on me because of my outline form. I, was, I had a purpose here. Uh, here. What I did, I kind of made an outline out of these conditions for joy. Do you want joy? How many of you want joy? All right, then here's what's got to happen. We first must admit that we're sinners. You got to get saved. If you're here today and you're not saved, you might find some happiness in life, but you're never going to find any joy. You're not going to have joy. You might have, you might have a good time, but that good time is going to turn into a bad time. If you want joy, then you've got to get saved, first of all. We all know that. Then if you want joy, you've got to live in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Then if you want joy... You got to walk as he walked by the power of the Holy Spirit. We got to follow his in his steps. But you don't do that through some, some legalistic effort. You do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want joy, then we must not love the things of this world. You know what steals so much of our joy? Our worldliness. We are so worldly. We focus so much on the world. We're so focused on the elections right now that we despair. I mean, you might like one of the candidates, and I'm going to tell you which candidate to vote for, which one I like. I don't know. I like one. And if I was dependent upon one of these candidates to make my life better, then I would despair. But, but, but uh, we don't love the things of the world. 
Do we want joy? Then we must avoid antichrist. Man, there are all sorts of antichrist in this world. Gnostics are antichrist. Anyone who says there's another way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, is an antichrist. And you better stay clear of them if you want joy. And you want to go get in some cult and be miserable and go to hell? Then join them. But you'll never have joy. Especially those, I say, who deny that Christ did. And there's a lot of churches out there that do. Then we must, if we want joy, then we must abide in him through his word. If we want joy, then we must purify ourselves and forsake the practice of sin. That's kind of like C. But now look at the next one. And it covers almost three chapters. Do you want joy? Then we must love one another. You must love your enemies. You must love your friends. You must love your family. You must love your neighbors. You have to love everybody if you want joy. If you hate someone because of the color of their skin, let me tell you what, you can't be saved, I don't believe, and you'll never have joy. You hate someone because of what class they're in, that monetarily, then you will never have joy. If you hate someone because you refuse to forgive them, then you will never have joy. We must love one another if we want to have joy. Let me tell you another thing, and this seems pretty obvious, but I don't think many of us believe it. If we want to have joy, then we must believe that the Lord is ready and willing to answer our prayers. That's what John's going to tell us. God's just waiting for you to pray, to put your pride aside and say, Lord, I need you in this situation. Man, I don't know about you, but I need the Lord in every situation. In every situation I'm in, because I know that little situations can turn into awful bad situations if I don't take those situations to prayer. And so Paul says, pray without ceasing. In other words, in everything, give thanks and, and, and pray to the Lord for guidance. And then I think the most important thing in American society, I think maybe John was writing to us in this very last chapter, very last verse, when he said, little children, keep yourself from idols. We live in a wor world full of idols. Man, I don't know about you, but when I go to pray, man, my mind wonders, I mean, I might be thinking, I'll be praying and thinking about the saints, as awful as they are. I mean, like, where did that come from? <laughs> or some movie I saw or something. Where did that come from? Well, you know, the reason that comes there is because I, I, I allow way too many idols to take away the time that I should be spending with the Lord and take away my thoughts and my efforts and, 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 and I lose my joy. So if you want joy, I'll tell you what, if you'll follow that last step, if you'll keep yourself away from idols and you'll give yourself totally and wholly to the Lord, all the other things there are going to take care of themselves. Because really, 
This is not some legalistic list that's going to, oh, I do the A, B, C, D, and E, I'm going to have joy. This is the natural outflow of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Will you make that relationship the most important thing in your life? You'll have all of these things. And you'll have joy. Well, with the outline out of, way, out of the way, let's, let's, let's dig into this, this little book. and We'll go to the very first verse, and you'll see just how potent the words of 1 John are as we, as we look at a few verses here today before we finish up. Let's, let's go to verse number 1. He says in that, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we, who's he talking about with we here? He's talking about the disciples, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning what? What's that word? What's that word for word? Greek word. You've heard it before. The logos. That's a very important word. The logos of life. In other words, we, we saw, we heard, we looked upon the very logos of life. That which was from the beginning. Now John uses two themes here that he, you should be familiar with from the Gospel of John to introduce 1 John. Same themes he used to introduce the Gospel of John. Remember in the Gospel of John how he started out, he said, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word is God. The same was with God. Now, you see, you see the two themes there. First of all, he attests to the deity of Christ by his immortality. He says that he is there in from the beginning, that which was from the beginning. In the beginning, he says in the gospel, was the word. When was the beginning? Well, let me tell you what. You take your little finite mind or your big finite mind, however, whichever you feel you have a what kind of mind you feel you have. But you take your finite mind and you go back as far as your finite mind will take you and guess what? Jesus Christ is there. He's there. He was there when God created the heavens and the earth. Go back there. He was there in the beginning. Go back a trillion years before that. Make that your beginning. And guess what? He was there. He's always been there. Remember what Micah had to say about Jesus way back in the Old Testament in his prophecy. He says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. From everlasting means that he is immortal. He's the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, almighty God. That's who Jesus Christ is. None other than that. But he came to us as a little baby in Bethlehem. The one who's going forth from everlasting, who had no beginning, had a beginning. Isn't that strange? Try to figure that out in your finite mind. And he came as Emmanuel, God with us. And John was a witness. Look at verse number one. He was a witness to his presence. I mean, he says here, we have seen him with our eyes. In other words, we gazed upon his flesh. 
And he wasn't a spirit because we handled him. I mean, John knew he wasn't a spirit. I mean, John had laid in his bosom. Can you imagine laying in the bosom of God? You know what he heard when he laid in the bosom of God? He heard the very heartbeat of God. John was there when God was hung on that, Emmanuel was hung on that cross. And he was there and he gazed upon the cross and he saw his broken body and he saw the thorns in his head and he saw the blood dripping down on the, off the cross and onto the ground. John was there. John saw him take his last breath and give up the spirit. But John also saw him in the upper room when he'd been raised from the dead. And he looked at his hands and touched his hands and felt the scars. And Thomas felt the, the, the wound in his side, the scar, the, the hole in his side from the wound in his side. I mean, they, we, he says, that which is from the beginning we have heard and we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon him and our hands have handled concerning the logos of life. John didn't just see him. They, the disciples didn't just see Jesus Christ. They heard Jesus Christ. What's he mean by that? They heard him, and when they heard him, how, do, how does John describe him? From what he heard from him, how does he describe him? As the logos of life. We heard the logos of life. I mean, we, we, we heard him speak the word of God. You know, the Greek philosophers for centuries had searched for the divine logos. They figured out if you could figure out where God was in words, you could know God. And they searched for him in all of their vain philosophies and, and their, with, by their vain philosophers. But they never found him. But John says, we found the divine logos. We found the, the word of life. And his words give life. Well, pastor, man, I wish I could have been back there and heard Jesus speak. I wish I could receive the divine words of life, the logos of life. Oh, guess what you can. That's what these 66 books are. They are the divine word of God. Words that give life. He's the word of life, the logos of life. The word of life is, is, is not in the print and, and, and paper of this Bible, but in his very words. That's where you have life. That's where you have eternal life. That's where you have life abundantly. And he says in verse number two, he says, the life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life was from the Father and was manifested to us. That Greek word there for declare is the word from which we get our English word angel. So what John is saying, we, the being the apostles, were witnesses of this word of life. We saw him, we handled him, we heard him. And, and we're like angels heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. We have proof. I mean, we saw him before his death, we saw him after his death, we saw him ascend into heaven. And not only that, after he ascended into heaven, he came to us at Pentecost and imparted life to us. The word of life lives 
lived in them, lives in them now, and lives in us. And you know what John wants? You know what he wants more than anything else? He wants you to have joy that's full. or He wants you to be full of joy. But he wants you to have that divine life, that divine seed implanted in you. Look at verse number three. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may, we're angel like angels declaring to you uh, that you also might have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What's John's main purpose of this book? That your joy will be full. Well, you want joy that's full? So then what John is saying here, we tell you what we've seen, what we know about Jesus Christ so that you might have fellowship with us and that you might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Man, you know what I'm really glad of? There are so many of us that receive the gospel. We receive the good news. We receive the word, the, the logos of life. We receive that divine seed. And you know what we do? We go off and we hide away with our Christian friends and we don't do anything else with that. Aren't you glad that John wasn't so self-centered? That he didn't see himself as some cult uh, hermit that would hide away uh, with the good news that he had. No, he saw himself as an angel. He saw his fellow disciples as angels who had a purpose to declare this great news about the Logos of life. And so that should be our calling too. I mean, if we're born again believers, if we've truly received the word of life in us, then it should make us angels. It makes us witnesses. Let me tell you what, I can witness to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't, you don't know Jesus Christ, let me tell you what, I'm a witness that he's real. I'm a witness that he's real. You, you want to know how to see me after church and I'll show you, tell you how I'm a witness that he's real. But every person in this room who's born again is a witness that he's real. How do I know he, he's real? Because he lives within my heart. Because he has changed me. He has changed me. He's made me a new person. I wish, no, you wouldn't want to know me before I was saved. But, but in some ways, I wish you did know me before I was saved. You'd be at a different church today. But if you, <laughs> but if you knew me before I was saved, you would know the change. That, my wife can, is a witness of that. <laughs> Amen. But that can be said for everybody in here that's been born again. We are witnesses to the fact that, that uh, Jesus Christ can save. And, and I have fellowship with the Lord. I have fellowship with the Father through the Son. I have that fellowship. And I want you to have that fellowship. I mean, the word fellowship there is the word kononia. And, and, and so the fellowship that John's talking about here isn't Dinner on the grounds like we're talking about next week. Although that's, that's a great place for Christian buddies to hang out together and maybe talk about the Lord. But that, that's not necessarily fellowship. A, a wedding's not necessarily fellowship. We have a Christmas party. That's not next. We call those fellowships, but those really aren't the kind of fellowship that he's talking about right here. The Greek word kononia means to have simply, it's, it's a real, has a real simple meaning. It means to have something in common with Someone else. To have something in common with, with someone else. 
something that bonds us together. What bonds us together in fellowship? The Lord bonds, the, the, the logos of life, the word of life. That's what bonds us together. That's why I don't understand how you can be a church and, and be bonded together and be truly bonded together and not be in the word of God. How you can be truly bonded together in fellowship with your family if you're not in the word of God. Because that's when we're in the word, we're in fellowship with the father through the son. You know, I've got to tell you, I have more fellowship. I can tell you about two of my buddies, G. Campbell Morgan and Vance Hebner. Those are, those are like two of my best buddies. They're both dead, by the way. But they're alive in the spirit. And when I read their sermons or when I listen to their sermons on the radio, man, I'm having fellowship with them. We're fellowshipping together in the Lord, in, in, in the Father through Jesus Christ. And that, that's true fellowship. I mean, if, if, if you're a Christian and you can hang out with other Christians and never talk about the Lord or, or talk about the Word, well, you might be friends, but that's not true fellowship. What we have in common is Jesus Christ, the, the Logos of life. And why did John write this book? Verse number four. Why, why am I telling you all of this today? Why am I telling you all of this? And these, just the same reason John told you all of this. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Forget despairing. Let me tell you what. You can scoff at Christianity. You can laugh at Christianity. You can, you can mock Christianity. But I guarantee you, true Christians are the only people who have real joy. And those people who scoff at Christianity are jealous because they have no joy. They're, they're cynical, bitter. Really, I'm, I just say this, they're almost evil people. And they have no joy. You can't live like this world lives and have joy. You can't have peace. And so John writes this book. I don't care who you are here today. He writes this book. You want joy? He writes this book that your joy might be full. I got to tell you, John wasn't on anything new here. That's the purpose of every book in the Bible. We went through Leviticus a few years back. I actually passed, passed out T-shirts, the people who survived. I survived a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Leviticus. Some of you still have those T-shirts. We still sell them for $29.99 if you want to see me after church. No, we don't. But Leviticus, you know why God wrote Leviticus? I had Moses write Leviticus for you, that your joy might be full. Genesis, that your joy might be full. Hosea, that we're studying on Wednesday night, that your joy might be full. Because that's where you find the logos of life is in the word. And the logos of life is joy. He is joy.
And God wants us to have joy. Not just joy for ourselves, but joy that overflows from us out into this lost and dying world. Well, pastor, I mean, come on. I mean, is it even possible in these dark, dreary days, these terrible times in which we live, that we can find joy? Sure it is. Quit eating so much at the table of this world and eat at the table of this word in true fellowship with the Lord. And you will be a person full of joy. Leo Biscoglia once told the story of how his mother one night cooked the fanciest meal the family had ever eaten. What was the occasion for the meal? Well, the night before, his dad had come to the table and told his family that our life is about to change. My, par- my business partner has stolen all the money out of the business, and he's absconded with the funds, and he's left the state. And I don't think we'll ever get the money back. And I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy. They were probably going to lose our car. We might lose our home. And things are really, really bad. And his mother goes out and cooks the fanciest dinner they've ever eaten. Leo said he termed it the misery dinner. The misery dinner. But his mother didn't see it that way. She went out and hawked some of her best jewelry and then went and spent it on the finest groceries her family had ever eaten and she cooked the finest meal they had ever eaten. And that night when she laid out the spread, they said, what are you doing? Don't you understand the situation that we're in? I mean, how in the world could you, you spend all the money on this, just this meal? And this, listen to what she said. She said that the time for a joyous feast is now. When we need it the most. Not sometime in the future when circumstances get better. But now. And Leo goes on in his in the text of his story, to to tell how, man, it just brought great hope to them and joy that their mother had such a great attitude in this terrible situation. And his mother's noble act inspired them all to get on with life with gratitude, trusting the Lord with gratitude. And sure enough, they got back on their feet And they ended up better off than they ever were before. You know, we live in really difficult times. You might call them miserable times. Is it possible in these miserable times in which we live to have joy? You better believe it is. Because the Lord stands at the door and he knocks. And he will 
If we let him in, he will dine with us and us with him. And it won't be any misery dinner, let me tell you. Forget the despair. We will have joy unspeakable and our cups will runneth over. That's what the Lord wants for every person in this room. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the hope and grace and wonderful joy that we have in you. Father, we're not people who despair. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, touch their heart and let them see in their hearts and with their minds what they're missing out on life. Because this is a difficult world. It's only going to get worse. Lord, just show them how they can find that peace and joy that all of us have in Jesus Christ. Father, all of us are way too involved in the things of this world. We've got way too many idols in our life. And I just ask today that, that we get smart, Lord, that we, we put some of those things away and we put you first, very first in our lives so that we find that joy, not just a fullness of joy, but a joy that runneth over to other people, Lord, so that we serve others in goodness and kindness the way you would have us to do. We just thank you for all we have through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. We'll stand and close in the song. We're going to actually do communion. We're doing communion. You can have a seat. We'll let it slide. His blood upon the wood. Forgiveness flowing down. Death has lost its sting The Lamb has overcome His blood upon the wood Forgiveness flowing down Death has lost its sting
Man, I am so excited today. Guess what we get to do? We get to do communion with the Lord. What a perfect, even though I forgot it, uh, what a perfect message as applicable to communion. I mean, we talked about the fellowship we have with the Lord. I mean, the fellowship we have with the word of life, with the logos of life. You know, communion is not a misery dinner, is it? Man, it's a, it's a, it's a joyful dinner. God has done great things for us. He wants things, great things for us. And you know what he wants more than anything else? That we will be full of joy. And he's made the way for us to be full of joy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And now we'll close in a song. Exalted to the throne, exalted to the throne. He was crowned with many crowns, crowned with many crowns. Now forever he shall reign, forever he shall reign. The Lamb who is to come, the Lamb who is to come. The Lamb.
God bless you guys. Have a good week. Follow him.